seated. Today, we come to the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It's Genesis 24, it has 60 some verses, but I'm going to be nice to you. We'll only read them in sections, but we will preach through all the 60 verses today, so I'm not going to be that nice. It is such a great passage, it's fun to read, it's very practical to understand. And like every other passage in the scriptures, it's about Christ. So turn a stand for the reading of the Word of God. And let's read the first nine verses of Genesis 24. Abraham was old, advanced in age. The Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for me, for my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, Beware lest you take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from thy oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand upon the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. You may be seated. Fascinating chapter. I'd love to read the whole thing. Read the whole thing when you go home. It's a love story. It's romantic. It's uh, mysterious. It is a great read. One of my favorite chapters to read in the Bible. And let's divide it in sections so you can see where it's going. In the first nine verses, you see the mission of Eliezer, Abraham's servant, to get a wife for Isaac. Verses 1 through 9, 
the mission of Eliezer to get Isaac, Abraham's son, a wife. Uh, next section, 10 to, through 27. The actual meeting of Eliezer and Rebekah. Then in verse 28 through 49, the offer of marriage. Verses 50 through 60, the reply. Verses 61 through 67, the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. Now let's make a few uh, general remarks about the whole passage so that you can see why this romance is in the Bible. First of all, you notice I've been calling this old, powerful servant of Abraham, Eliezer. But there's no mention of his name in this chapter. But it is mentioned in the 15th chapter of Genesis. So turn back to the 15th chapter of Genesis and you will see why I'm calling this old guy Eliezer. Chapter 15, and let's start with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So we don't know much about that guy except that he was a very powerful person and a very trustworthy servant of Abraham and that he was from Damascus and that he was a child of the covenant and a son of God. So we've got Eliezer now, who is being sent on a mission to find Isaac, the right wife. And if he finds the wrong wife, he is in big trouble with Abraham and with God. Now where's the gospel in this picture? It's obvious. This is a story of a father looking for a bride for his son. That's the heart of the gospel in the New Testament. New Testament, New Testament is the story of God the Father getting a bride for God the Son so that he could die for her and sanctify her so that she could serve him and submit to him throughout all eternity. So the New Testament is about Christ the bridegroom being sent by God the Father to be the husband of the church, the bride. Now the literal story here is you have Abraham, the patriarch. You remember the book of Genesis just doesn't call him a patriarch. Abraham, the patriarch, realizes that God has made him a promise. 
And throughout Abraham's long life, God has put him under a series of tests to see if you'll believe God even when it's hard to believe God and to see if you'll be faithful to God even when it is hard to be faithful to him. So we're reminded now that God gave Abraham a promise. Now all the promises are rolled up into one here now. God promised that he would give Abraham a seed that would ultimately be the Lord Jesus Christ and the church in him. And that seed would be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And that would eventually be the church. And they would bring the blessings of the covenant and of salvation to every family and every nation upon the face of the earth. So all the promises are wrapped up here in one. Now Abraham is a faithful man. And he knows that God is going to be faithful. Even you don't see how in the world God can be faithful. Even though God's faithfulness is mysterious. Too many obstacles. Too many things in the way. Too many questions that have to be answered. But Abraham trusts God no matter what. And because he trusts God, he knows he has a responsibility to be future-oriented. That's the implication of believing that God will be faithful to his promise. All right, God's promised me he's going to be, give me all kinds of children. Those children are going to influence everybody in the whole wide world. So now I've got to figure out how to be consistent with that promise and make sure that the future is secure for them. Can't be a defeatist. I can't sit around worrying, oh me, there's just so many problems. There's so many city-states. Our numbers are so small. How in the world are we going to get the victory over our enemies that are so large and so many? Didn't worry about that. That's God's problem. And so here you see Abraham finding a wife for his son consistent with the promise of God. He is working toward the future. Future-oriented. Everything he does is for the future. That's the way a Christian man is. A Christian man does not, is not a synthesis. He's not somebody that tries to get along with everybody else and, and not believe things too radical, but to uh, be synthetic and mix what he believes with other people and what they believe. He's not to be an escapist. He's not to retreat. He's not, he's not to say there's just too many of them and too few of us. He takes the future. That's his concern. Everything he does, he does for the future. Is that you, men? Everything you do, you do for the future. Don't do it for your own benefit. You don't do it for your own enjoyment. You do it for the victory of the family of God over all of its enemies throughout the history of mankind. Do you think in those terms? Are you always uh, rubbing your hands saying, woe is me. Biden's going to be the end of us all. 
There's just too many problems. Enemies too big. They're too well funded. And what can little old me do against such great enemies? What can you do? You can carry out the will of God and make sure that everything you do is for the purpose of advancing the kingdom of God in this life. And that everything you do is committed to getting the victory over the enemies of God and to make sure your church grows and to make sure your family's godly. That's what Abraham's doing. I'm going to get a wife for my son so she can have 10,000, 20,000 children. And so their children can have 20,000, 30,000 more. And so then all my descendants can benefit all the nations of this earth. So I got to get Isaac a wife and not just any wife. But a wife that will be suitable. Great, 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 great granddaddy of Jesus. Abraham's called the father of the church and Calvin. Calvin calls him the father of the church. Sarah and the other matriarchs are called the mothers of the church. Because it's, it's from their union with their husbands that thousands and thousands of people be brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Not have any children of your own. Calvin didn't. Calvin and his wife, Idolette, were unable to have children. So somebody came up to Calvin and asked him how many children he had. And he said, well, I have none of my own. And I can count my spiritual children by the thousands. Those are the terms Abraham's thinking. God may be a promise. He's going to be faithful to a promise. And that makes a great demand upon me. I've got to live for the future. And then there's another thing in this chapter that becomes very obvious. And that is, we see, just as Abraham sees, that the providence of God is is behind everything that happens in this chapter. Providence of God is what causes everything to happen. And the providence of God in this whole narrative, render certain everything God says to uh, Isaac, Abraham, Rebecca, Eliezer. It used to be everybody knew what the providence of God was. Now it's just a theological term. We're nothing and nowhere without the providence of God. God's providence includes two things. He provides for all of our needs, and he governs everything that happens to us. Everything in this narrative was caused by Almighty God, and that rendered certain in Abraham's mind, even though he didn't know how it was all going to work out. That rendered certain in Abraham's mind that the promise would come true and that he would win and that his family would be the greatest and largest 
and godliest family on the face of the earth. Think like that? Or do you think, poor little church, this world is so depraved, things are so bad, we don't have a chance. But I'll tell you, nobody has a chance in a world governed by a sovereign God because there's no such thing as chance. Now, there's one other thing that I want to talk about this whole chapter before we look into the pieces of it. And that is, you see, the uh, distinctive trait, the distinctive feature of everybody that's in covenant with God including God himself. They all have their different personalities and they respond in different ways, but everybody in this narrative has the same feature that every covenant member of God's family would have forever. That is, they were all characterized by one of the most important words in the Hebrew Bible. That is the word chesed. You can spell it two ways, H-E-S-E-D or C-H-E-S-E-D. It's used 250 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it's one of the very most important words. In the King James Version and the New American Standard Version, it's translated loving kindness, tender mercies, or mercy. In the New American Standard Version, it's often translated faithfulness. But those are just little pieces of this word hesed. If I were to translate the word hesed, with all of its meaning cram-packed into one little definition. I would say that Hesed is relentless faithfulness to the covenant bond. Relentless, no matter what. Relentless faithfulness to whatever God says. Because that's the way God is. God is relentlessly faithful to us. Nothing can stop God from being faithful to you. Nothing. He's relentless at it. He expects us to manifest that same quality of relentless faithfulness to the Word of God and to that bond that holds us all together. Back when I was in uh, seminary, I had... uh, uh, a class, I, I had a two-hour class that I could choose from, whatever it was, independent study. And so I decided I was going to translate into English a German book. Das Furt Hesed in dem Altum Testamentum, which means the word Hesed in the Old Testament. Now that was an important book. 
and had never been translated into English before. So I had a two-hour course, and so for the first three quarters of that course, I would enthusiastically and diligently translate that book out of German into English. Well, for several reasons. It was a good book. I could see myself making money by translating this book into English. So I was in the library studying and reading a Christian magazine, and I saw an ad. And the ad was for a new book just translated into English, never translated before. The word Hesed in the Old Testament. So I dropped the course. <laughs> but the word Hesed, remember, and everybody in this chapter uh, uh, manifested relentless faithfulness to the bond between God and his people in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can break that bond. Nothing can keep us from being faithful to each other. God is faithful to us. And nothing can keep him from being being faithful. So everybody's relentlessly faithful in this narrative. Abraham's relentless. He's going to get a godly wife for his son no matter what. Eliezer's relentlessly faithful. He's, he's going to get a, a, a wife for Isaac like Abraham wants, no matter what. Rebecca is relentlessly faithful. She's going to do what she's told. Uh, her brother and her father are relentlessly faithful. So everybody in this chapter, starting with God, is relentlessly faithful to each other. Look how many times these words are used. Now, the American, New American's going to say, it's going to use the word faithfulness or things like that, but I'm going to give it our definition. So look, just look how many times it comes up. Turn to chapter uh, 24 and verse 12. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show Hesed to my master Abraham. Be relentlessly merciful, uh, faithful to him. The last part of verse 14, last sentence, and by this I shall know that thou hast shown Hesed, loving kindness, relentless faithfulness to my master. Down in verse 27. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forgotten his hesed. He's not forgotten to be relentlessly faithful to Abraham. And then look at page verse several other places in here, but it's worth looking at all of them, because over and over and over again, God's relentlessly faithful to Abraham, Abraham's relentlessly faithful to God, Isaac relentlessly faithful to Abraham. That's the way life is in a Christian community. That's the way life is in the church. 
that we're all just faithful to each other no matter what. No matter where anybody else is faithful to us or not, we're going to be faithful. We're the last one showing faithfulness, so be it. You don't care what anybody else does. We're going to be relentlessly faithful to every vow we've made, to every person who shares this bond. Most of all, we're going to be relentlessly faithful to whatever God says. All right, now let's see here what else happens. Chapter 24, verses 1 and through 9. Abraham is very old, as you're going to see. He lived to be 175 years old. The Lord blessed him in every way. Influential man. Wealthy man. He gets his faithful servant, Eliezer. And he says, I'm going to send you in a mission. And before you go, I want you to swear an oath. That you're going to be faithful to this mission. He says in verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household who had a charge of all that he owned. Please place your hand under my thigh. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanite. Don't read into this any racism whatsoever. Abraham is not telling Eliezer, go find somebody for Isaac and make sure she is of the same race. Because we don't want any of these interracial marriages. First of all, nowhere ever, not even once, does the Bible condemn interracial marriages. Nowhere ever, not ever once, does the Bible identify a person by the color of his skin. Wife, you remember her name? Zipporah, you remember where she was from? Ethiopia. And Ethiopia is just as African today as it was back then. And in fact, Abraham's sister didn't like Zipporah. She didn't like the fact that she was an Ethiopian. So do you know how God punished Miriam? Gave her leprosy and turned her white. Oh, anyway. Uh, here is Don't 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 get 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 him a Canaanite. Although racial marriages are not forbidden, inter-religious marriages are. 
we are forbidden to marry people of other religions. We've seen that time and again in our study of the book of Genesis. We've seen that in the study of the New Testament. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what communion has light with darkness? Canaanites, that's a, a name, broad name for all kinds of little tribes that filled up that part of the country, were terribly wicked, idolatrous, perverted, immoral. Abraham saying, I don't want the great-granddaddy of Jesus to marry any of these people. I want him to marry a woman that's going to be godly, that's going to be the same faith and the same religion. Because if we get this wrong, Isaac, Eliezer, if we get this wrong, and we let Isaac marry whoever he wants to marry, and Rebecca is influenced by all this idolatry and adultery and wickedness and perversion. That's the grandmother of Jesus we're talking about. And this could be the end of the story if we get her in the wrong wife. We get the type of Christ, Isaac, the wrong wife. She influences her marriage and influences Isaac in a way that's rebellious against God. There is no Savior of the world to come. There will be no Savior of the world. And if there's no Savior of the world, there's no salvation for the world. <laughs> and we all go to hell if you get Isaac the wrong wife. So make sure she's not a Canaanite. Go back to my people. Find somebody there. Now, why did he want to go back to his people? Is he saying Isaac's got to marry his first cousin? No. He's got to make sure that who Isaac marries, marries is not the seed of the serpent, but the seed of the woman and of the family of the covenant. So number one, get Isaac a wife that is Christian, through and through. And swear to me you're going to do it. So Abraham has him make an oath and has this unusual practice, custom of putting his hand, as he makes this oath, under Abraham's thigh, Eliezer. Put your hand under my thigh, Eliezer, and swear to me, he'll not get my wife a Canaanite. Now what in the world is that all about? A couple things. The thigh is in close proximity 
the circumcised bodily member. And circumcision was the sign of God's covenant. And Eliezer, God saying to him, Eliezer, take this thing of the covenant seriously. God's going to hold you accountable. You're swearing in the name of the covenant of the circumcision. And if you are unfaithful, God will come down hard on you. Could be another reason. Put a hand under a thigh because it's in close proximity to the reproductive organ. He's saying, take this serious, Eliezer. The Son of God is going to come through my son's loins. This is a serious thing. The salvation of the world. It's all tied up with your faith. And uh, he has some gifts that he gives them. Gives them some camels and some donkeys and some gold. Gave them a fortune. Said, now, now give this to their family. Abraham was not trying to bribe them. Abraham was not trying to take advantage of their love for money. Abraham was a godly man. Rebecca's father and brother were godly men. You don't try to buy off or bribe a godly man. So why did he give these men and Rebecca all this wealth, millions of dollars worth of wealth? First of all, in those days particularly, wealth was a sign that God was blessing you because you were relentlessly faithful. Somebody that's faithful to God and to the bond between God and himself is going to have a lot of wealth. A very prosperous man. Secondly, given Rebecca's daddy and brother all that wealth, was a very sure sign, I'll be able to take care of your daughter. You don't have to worry about her future. When I uh, give marital counseling to young men, one of the pieces of advice I always give them is make sure you can support her on your salary. I don't care how much you make, can't support her on your salary, don't marry her. Told that to one young man. He said, well, I can't support her on my salary as it is now. I said, well, hold off. So he held off and came back, and I, he said, uh, Mr. Moorcraft, I now can support uh, my wife because now I have two jobs. And I think all this silver and all this gold is showing them that Abraham is blessed by God. Notice how the text started. Look at verse 24, chapter 24, verse 1. And Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And this is a sure sign 
to Rebecca's family that God has blessed Abraham in every way and that Isaac is able to support her very well. So, uh, notice the name that's used for God in this chapter. It's a different word. God always has a variety of names, and in various situations in his life, it all depends on the situation as what he wants people to call him. First chapter of Genesis, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim means the almighty God who can create something out of nothing by merely speaking. And then when it came to fellowship with man and the introduction of covenants, God would tell them to call him Jehovah or the word Yahweh, which Jehovah comes from. And Jehovah was the covenant name of God who revealed himself to his people, who provided for all his people, uh, who would bring himself into communion with his people and who was the self-sufficient almighty God. So now in this chapter, because everything is at stake, church, savior of the world, salvation, because everything is at stake, God wants them to call him by the most dramatic majestic names he can think of. I want you to call me Jehovah. The God who does what he will when he will. The God who always carries out his purposes. God who comes into communion with his people. But I not only want you to call me Jehovah, I want you to call me Elohim. I'm Elohim of heavens and Elohim of earth. I'm the almighty God who does whatever he pleases in earth and sea and all deep places. They need to know that. As Jehovah, I'm going to be faithful to everything I promised you, so don't worry about that. And as Elohim, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, nothing's going to keep me from it. So, go through this chapter. It occurs many times. See that phrase, Jehovah, the Lord. When you see the word Lord in four capitalized letters, it always is Jehovah. Like in verse 3, swear by the Lord, the Elohim of heaven, and the Elohim of earth. Now, what wife did God want for Isaac? And we look in this passage and see what kind of woman God wants you to be if you're going to get married. 
what kind of woman you're going to look for as a man if you want to get married. Because the kind of woman that God wanted for Isaac the same woman and kind of woman God wants you who are wives or who will be wives to be someday. Let's look at some of these things. Let's look at verse uh, 16 through, I mean, six, uh, 10 through 27. And the servant took 10 camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his uh, masters in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, Jehovah Elohim, please grant me success today. And show hesed and relentless kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be, now Eliezer is praying, now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, Drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And by this I shall know that thou hast shown relentless faithfulness to my master. Eliezer is very practical. He's praying. He's saying, Lord, uh, I'm going to be seeing a lot of women in the next few days, trying to find the wife of Isaac. And the most practical way I could pick out the right one is in the evening when all of the women come to the well to fill up their jars. If a woman comes up to me and asks me for a drink, then turns around and waters all my camels. No, that's the one. Well, that tell you about Rebecca. That tells you number one, she is a warm, hospitable woman. She's willing to take care of people's needs. She was willing to give Eliezer a drink on that very hot day. But not only that, she was very industrious. It wasn't some lazy person who would work hard in the morning and then spend all afternoon playing on the internet. This was a woman who said, after she gave Abraham water, I mean Eliezer, uh, I'll water all your camels for you. Now, that is work. To water all these camels. So what Eliezer is saying, I want a woman that is hospitable, that's concerned about my needs, 
and that is a hard-working woman. If you bring such a person into my life, I'll know it's an act of your relentless faithfulness in showing me who you want Isaac to marry. Verse 15. And it came about before he'd finished speaking, before he even said amen, and he finished asking God for a wife. Came about before he'd finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. This is Abraham's kinfolk. Yeah, in other words, the seed of the woman. And the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. And no man had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. There's another requirement for a godly wife. Be a virgin. And to never have had any relationships with man. I want you mothers and you young women to realize that in our culture today, most young men and most young women slept with somebody before they graduated from high school. Common. Virginity is a bad word. They laugh at virgins. Virginity is a burden you have to carry. But it's a beautiful thing to the Almighty God. And so you teach your children from their earliest days. Use all of the spiritual power that's in you to avoid immorality. Avoid immoral people Avoid immoral relationships. Avoid any place or anything that makes it easy for you to be immoral. Because one of the godly traits, one of the necessary traits of a godly woman for a man is that before they marry, they neither have had any sexual relationship somebody else. So, verse 16, the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her. Please, said, please, let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered the jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. 
So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew water for all the camels. <laughs> the man was standing there staring at her. Couldn't take his eyes off of her. Is this the one? Gazing at her in silence. I can't keep from looking at her. And I can't keep from praising God that here she is. How do you men, boys, how do you find a wife like Rebecca? Well, you pursue her. Go looking for him. But you pray. That's the first thing. Pray and ask God to bring you a Rebecca. You say, are you saying we pray and God's just going to drop the perfect woman into our laps? Sometimes, yeah, it happened to me like that way. I had a Rebecca dropped into my lap. <laughs> and I wasn't a good pursuer, so that's a good thing. <laughs> and so he knows this is the one. Verse 21, meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Then it came about when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a gold ring wearing a, weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for wrists weighing ten shekels in gold. That's a lot of gold. And said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? Then what a relief he had in verse 24 when she said, I'm kin to Uncle Abraham. This is the one. She's the one I'm supposed to come and get. She is of the seed of the woman. Verse 25, again, she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. And the man, faithful Eliezer, bowed down and worshipped God, worshipped Jehovah. He said, Blessed be Jehovah, the Elohim of my master Abraham. <laughs> Who has not forsaken his relentless faithfulness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Praising God that God's relentlessly faithful and that God has guided him every step of his way.
Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran outside to the man at the spring, Eliezer. And it came about that when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, This is what the man said to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. Laban said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why? Do you stand outside since I've prepared the house and a place for the camels? So the man entered the house. Then Laban unloaded the camels and he gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. When food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I've told you why I'm here told you my business. And he said, Laban said, speak on. Eliezer said, I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich and has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants, and maids, and camels, and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I live. She'll go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, suppose the woman doesn't want to follow me. And he said to me, Jehovah, before whom I have walked, it shows you the faith of Abraham. Jehovah, before whom I have walked, will send his angel. He'll send the Son of God pre-incarnate to get a wife for Isaac. Uh, he'll make your journey successful. And you will take a wife for my son, for my relatives, and from my father's house. Then you'll be free from my oath when you come to my relatives. And if they do not give her to you, you'll be free from my oath. So I came today to the spring and said, O Lord Jehovah, the Elohim of my master Abraham, if now thou wilt make my journey for which I go successful, Behold, I'm standing by the spring, 
And may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw, and to whom I say, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she will say to me, You drink, and I'll draw the, for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom Jehovah has appointed for my master's son. For I had finished speaking in my heart. Old Rebecca came down, came out with her jar on her shoulder, went down to the spring, and I said to her, Please let me drink. And she quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will water your camels also. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. Then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? She said, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who Milcah bore to him. I'm of Abraham's family. Put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. Bowed down. Worship Jehovah. And worship Jehovah, the Elohim of my master Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master, a kinsman for his son. So now if you are going to deal relentlessly faithful with my master, tell me, and if, and if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Everybody here trusts the Lord. Everybody in this whole picture loves God's word and wants to be faithful to him. And it came about, verse 52, when Abraham's servant heard that those words, that he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord, and the servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Those were a dowry. You know that young men are to give their wives a dowry before they, before they marry them. That's what God says in the Old Testament. In Europe, in the Middle Ages, wives, girls, would give their husbands dowries and give their husbands father dowry, and that's how um, royalty diminished. And that's why women became... Uh, something that you didn't want because uh, they had to pay a dowry to somebody. But what he's saying here is you pay a dowry so that she and her daddy will know 
that you're capable of taking care of her. It's a diary you could give to your sweetheart today. Can't be something you owe money for. Because that wouldn't prove anything except that you're in debt. <laughs> so you give her an engagement ring that's paid for. Anyway, verse 54, we're about to quit here in a minute. Verse 54, then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. And her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days, say 10. Afterwards, she may go. And he said to them, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, you want to go with this man? And she said, We'll go. Now, what I just told you about made the Hebrew people of the Old Testament unique. All the other nations of the ancient world, the Syrians, the Syrians, whatever you want to talk about, had a low view in women. And women were treated like chattel slaves, a little better than dogs and cats. And everybody today thinks that's the way the Hebrews of the Old Testament treated their children as well. But of all the nations and all the religions of the ancient world, there was one nation that honored women. And that was the sons of Abraham. So when anybody comes and tells you that the Hebrews had a low view of women just like anybody else, rebuke them for being so ignorant. They were the one nation in the ancient world that had a high regard for women, and they didn't have contract marriages. A woman just didn't marry whoever her daddy told her to. Here it says, you want to go with this man? You want to marry him? Because you don't have to go if you don't want to. So here you have a young woman that was consulted by her family see if she voluntarily wanted to enter into a marriage with this man. And if she didn't, she wouldn't have to go with him. Verse 59. We're getting to the end, so hold on. 
Thus, they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse, Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. So here are her relatives prophesying over her, pronouncing a benediction over her, reaffirming God's promise with her. Rebecca, remember now, if you want this man and you marry him, you all are going to have tens upon tens of thousands of children from every nation and every class and every category. And the number of your children and grandchildren is going to be greater than the stars of the sky and the sign of the sand of the seashore. And all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through your seed. You ready? You still want to do it? So, of course, being a woman of faith, relentlessly faithful, verse 61, And Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac had come from going to Beer Laharoi, where he was living in the Negev, coastlands, southern Israel. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. Isaac's not in with what, he doesn't know what all's going on yet. Big surprise. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. So important about saying that Rebekah dismounted from her camel. Was this woman who's honored by Abraham's family also knows how to honor men. And if she was staying on her camel, this man would have to look up at her. And that would be disrespectful. So she gets down off her camel so he can look at her face to face. She said to the servant, Is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, Eliezer said, He's my master, Isaac. Then she took her veil, covered herself. She do that. 
was one of the traits of a godly woman. Not only virginity and hospitality and industriousness and all the rest. It's modesty. One of the rarest things in our world. She already had these flowing robes on her from her neck to her ankles. But she felt like to honor this man had to be more modest. So she covers her face with a veil. One of the rarest things in our culture today in the church is modesty. Very few people know what modesty is. Some of the clothes, the swimming suits, the clothes that women and girls in the church wear. If you have any conscience at all, what did the mother teach them? You look like a prostitute, people treat you like prostitutes. I've said before, some women and young women have bathing suits that have enough threads in to make leggings for a hummingbird. Uh, Susan Mitchell used to be my secretary, very godly and modest woman. I was at the uh, YMCA swimming. And she and her husband were up on the third floor riding the bicycles. There was a big window up there that you could look down and see the swimming pool. So when I finish swimming, I go out to my car. And there's a sign on my car from Susan. She said, Joe, we, we saw you down there swimming. And we almost came to swim with you. My swimming suit has a hole in the knee. <laughs> Point is, you only want a modest wife. And you want to be a modest woman for your husband. It's one of the traits in Jesus' great, great, great grandmother. And the servant told Isaac all the things that have been done. That's the first Isaac knows of all this. Poor old innocent Isaac. That's all he knows. He's been working or fishing or something. And the first, this is the first time he heard about all this. But he's seen her. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. Sarah died. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. 
Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That verse tells us something extremely important. When does a marriage begin? When does a marriage begin? And you meet some girl and be snowed over her looks and fall in love with her and sleep with her and live with her the rest of the life, that's okay? Nope. There's two things that make a marriage. A public covenant and a private committal and the public covenant must take place before the private committal. Look at the text. Verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. That was a very, very public thing. This wasn't him sneaking around finding a tent so they could sleep together. This was a very public act. Everybody could see. This was the public testimony. I'm going to marry this woman. And I'm taking her into my mother's tent. So then after he made that public statement, loved her. He became his wife. And his heart was comforted after his mother's death. So what, when does a marriage start? You have a public covenant declaring that I'm going to be relentlessly faithful to this woman. And she is going to be relentlessly faithful, faithful to me. And then you seal it with a kiss. You seal it with a private committal. Private committal must never precede public covenant. Because if you sleep with somebody, even if you say you love them, before the public committal, you're not married. And you have cheated on the Hesed. I want to sleep with you, even though we're not married, because I want to be relentlessly faithful to my own desires. So, public committal, private public covenant, private committal. and a So what is a, a marriage ceremony? It's not a worship service. A wedding ceremony is not a worship service. People try to get them to look like worship services, but they're not worship services. They're covenant ceremonies where the man and the woman stand before witnesses and before God and publicly covenant with each other. 
that we're going to be faithful to each other the rest of our lives. As long. But I did warn you and tell you this is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. Thank you for this beautiful chapter. Thank you for the way it makes us feel, the way it makes us think. Pray that relentless faithfulness would characterize all of our relationship with you, all of our relationships in the church, relationships in marriage. Thank you for Abraham. Thank you for Isaac. Thank you for Rebecca. Know that humanly speaking, there would be no Savior of the world. For my sake, amen.